Thank you for joining us for our online worship experience. We are so excited that you chose to worship with us today. Our goal is to share the gospel with our community, church family, and online viewers like you. If you live in Savannah or any of the surrounding areas, we would love to meet you at our Savannah campus at 1624 East 38th Street. Remember, resources like this are meant to be supplemental, and community with other believers is very important. So get yourself to church. If you like what you see today, you can find out more by visiting citychurch.life or by clicking the link in the description below. We are finishing up a segment, uh, the last segment. This will be uh, Ruth chapter four. This has been going on for several weeks. If you've been here or been paying attention online, I know Brenda and I have even been out of town at times when this has happened, or we've been in the back serving in the kids. So we've missed some of them being in here with you, but we were able to watch them online. That's the great thing about uh, technology. So hopefully you haven't missed it, but we're gonna wrap this up, Ruth chapter four. Uh, and the segment we're covering today of Ruth chapter 4 is all about legacy. We at City Church, we talk about legacy a lot. In fact, before I go any further, let me open up a prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise your name, Lord, and we just love you and we worship you. And before we do another thing, Lord, we just want to invite the Spirit of God to be here with us. Lord, we've been worshiping you, and we know that you're here with us, but we just surrender this time to you. Because, Lord, you've got people in this room, you've got people watching online, you've got people that will watch this later that need to hear this word. Lord, there's something in here for them, for me, for everyone, Lord, who will listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. Because, Lord, you breathe life into your word, and your word goes forth to accomplish what it's sent to do. I pray, Lord, not only, and we pray not only for City Church Savannah, but City Church in Pooler. We also pray, Lord, for the city's churches around us, because this work is so much bigger than one church. Lord, it's a kingdom work, and we just invite your Spirit to be here with us, to bring your word alive, Open our hearts to hear, open our eyes to see, and our ears to hear. And Lord, give us the courage to respond in faith to what you offer us in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm saying is legacy. We talk a lot about legacy at City Church, uh, but the definition for legacy, something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor or from the past now, that's what's coming to you, but we talk a lot about at City Church about the legacy you're setting for others. And if you'll stay with me and if you'll focus in and hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying today in Ruth chapter 4, you'll see how Ruth, the book of Ruth in four short, chap short chapters, culminates in a legacy going forth from a Moabite woman who made the right choice, and she sets a legacy that trails all the way from the book of Ruth to the King of Kings, Jesus the Christ, who came later. The story involves a hero. We know him as Boaz. It also involve, uh, involves a very young woman who's in need of a hero. And God's going to bring the two of those together. At the very center of this story, what you got to get, and I'm going to go through several scriptures. I hope you can focus and stay with me. Uh, and we'll put most of them on the screen. But please listen to what's the Spirit of the Lord saying to you. There's an application here for all of us. Uh, at the center of the story, Boaz is what's called a Gael. It's, it's a kinsman redeemer. It's set up in Deuteronomy chapter 25. God put it in place so that those, because of the society they lived in at the time that they lived, they had to have a man. There had to be a son. There had to be a father. And if there was no man in the family, then the woman was in a place where she was in desperate need. That's just the way it was then. Uh, so you got to understand that. So God set this principle in place for a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer would step up, 
take the place of the deceased husband or brother, or, or de deceased husband, he would usually be the brother or a near or kinsman. If there was no brother, it could be a cousin or whatever. But someone would step up, take the place to redeem the widow. And the whole point would, he would even go so far as to fathering a child, a son specifically, and then he would be named after the dead brother or the dead husband. And the point of that was so that he could carry the family line forward and it would just continue to flow. So this is the very center of this entire story. You have to get this or the thing doesn't make any sense. Now, the story also involves making poor choices. It starts off with some very poor choices. There's poor choices and poor choices end up with consequence. Those of us that have been around very well, I'm looking around the room and I think all of us are old enough to have made some poor choices. All of us know there's consequences tied to poor choices. That's why this story relates to all of us. But the thing is, you can make some poor choices. You can go through some consequences of those poor choices. But I found out in my life, and I find from God's word, and we see in Book of Ruth, is God's bigger than that. God can work through those situations, and he can utilize it to still fulfill his purpose and his plan. It's bigger than me. It doesn't even depend on me. The other thing you got to get in this story for it to make sense I don't know if you can see that. That was taken from uh, uh, looking over into Israel last year from, uh, oh, I forget the name, of the mountain where Moses stood when he saw the land, but he didn't get to go in. Uh, I wish it was clearer, but it, it's all about the land. In the Old Testament, you've got to get this for it to make sense. It's all about the land. God brought them into the promised land. God gave them the land. The land was tied and divided up by tribes or family units, and it all was about the land staying in the family, and they didn't own the land. Who owned the land? Who owned the land if they didn't own the land? I see you out there. God owned the land. God owned the land. God owned the land, and they're just tenants. And their tenant was dependent on their obedience to God. So with that in mind, if I sold you the land, I'm going to try to participate here. If I came out and sold you my parcel of land, you didn't get a deed. All you got was the right to use it. For, for Ruth to make sense, you got to grasp this. I sell you the land, you take the land, but you don't own it outright. You don't have a deed for it. That means you can use it, you can plant on it, but what's supposed to happen is someone in the family, maybe my son-in-law Ryan, would come along and bail out the family because I had misused the funds so much and he would redeem the land back. It's supposed to, thank you, Ryan, appreciate you bailing me out. It has to stay in the family because the land belonged to God. And God's just loaning it to them at the time. So we come into chapter one. Chapter one was all about identity. Chapter one, what we found was they made some poor choices. A man named Elimelech married to a woman named Naomi with two sons. They chose during a time of famine to leave where they were supposed to be on the western side of the Dead Sea to go over into the eastern side of the Dead Sea to a land named Moab where they didn't belong. Bad choice. Elimelech died while they were there. They were there for 10 years. Don't know how long they planned on going there. Elimelech dies. His two sons marry Moabite women, which he's, they're not supposed to do. They end up dying. So what we find is we have Naomi over in a land she doesn't belong in with two daughter-in-laws, no longer have husbands, three widows, no means of support in a desperate situation, living in a land she shouldn't even be in. 
what she does is encourages her daughter-in-laws to go back to their families. Go back to your father's house, marry again, have children, have a good life. I'm heading back to Bethlehem where I belong. And you know the story, Orpah cried on her shoulder, made a big emotional plea, and then went back to her family. But Ruth made the right choice. Ruth's the one that clung to her neck, wept over her, and said, I'm not going anywhere. You know, some of you might have, I think Brenda and I even used this in our wedding. Uh, it's a great, beautiful verse to put in a wedding. It's about doing life together, but it's really not what it's about. It's about Moabite woman who didn't belong making the right choice. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but when she urged her to leave, she hung on her neck. She said, I'm not going anywhere. She made the right choice. Here's where the legacy begins. Ruth makes a choice, and she says, your people will be my people, and the most important choice of her life, hopefully the most important choice you've ever made, and she said, your God's going to be my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me if I don't complete this. She made the right choice, and the legacy's going to start from the choice she made. They head back to Jerusalem. They get there during the bar barley harvest at the very beginning. And then we get to chapter two. Just a real quick recap as we go heading for chapter four. So chapter two is all about destiny. If you were here or you watched that, then you found out that the, really the only way these two widow women had any means of support is they had to do something called gleaning. And God laid this out. He laid this out in the book of Leviticus and he laid it out in the book of Deuteronomy. And the way this worked, if you had a field and this was a planted field of wheat or grain or whatever it could be, the way it worked is we would go out and maybe you work in my field and we'd work through the field and anything that had fallen to the ground, you had to leave it. And you couldn't pick around the edges and you couldn't pick the corners. And if you made your first pass through and looked back and said, goodness, we left a lot on the vine, you couldn't go back for it. God forbid it because it had to stay there because then the widows and the orphans would have visible means of support and they could go and work through that field and it would be work, but they would find what they need to survive and that's what Ruth does. Ruth says, I'm going. And you got to understand this. She was facing real discrimination. She was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. She didn't belong there. And she didn't know what she was going to walk into. She walked out of Naomi's house and she walked into a field. Anything could have happened. And you could say, Jim, I don't think it's that big a deal. Go back and read the book of Ruth because Naomi and Boaz in two separate occasions tell her, don't go in anybody else's field. Stay here. I can protect you if you stay in this field. Because she's a Moabite woman. And in fact, it's only four chapters in four small, short chapters, six times, Ruth is referred to as Ruth the Moabite. Over and over again, every time she's mentioned, the first six times, her name is Ruth the Moabite because she didn't belong there. That was the point. But she showed courage. Whatever she was facing, she rose above it, and she went out into the field to do what she could do. And I love the fact that she just happened to find Boaz's field. She didn't go out of Naomi's house, walk out there and see a sign that said Boaz, and then she said, oh, I guess I'll go in that field. She just went in one of the fields, and we don't know how she ended up in that field other than the fact that God led her to that field. You ever just happen to find the place you need to be? I mean, we were talking about this a few minutes ago with someone. It's not the typical type of book in the Bible, but I love it because as I've dug into this myself, I see it more relevant to my life than many of the other books in the sense that I don't usually have a prophet come to me and give me a word. I don't, I've never had an angel show up and say something to me and direct my life. I get a leading on the inside because I'm a child of God and he lives inside of me, but it just kind of happens. 
I find myself where God wants me because I want to do what God wants me to do. And if you really want to fulfill God's call on your life and the purpose he's got for you, and you're trying desperately to hear his voice and be led by him, you're going to find yourself just happening to show up where you need to be. I just firmly believe it. I believe that's why the book of Ruth is here for us. She happened to come to the field of Boaz. And then I love the fact she shows up the first day of work picking and gleaning. She shows up with 25 pounds of barley the first day. Naomi looks at that and goes, girl, what, whose field did you go to? Because she's picking up scraps. How'd she come home with 25 pounds? I'm not going to go back over chapter 2. If you don't remember it, you can go back and look at it. But that sets us up for chapter 3. And at the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, we get to chapter 3, and it's all about redemption. And in chapter 3, Naomi's a wise woman. She's been around. She knows a few things. She understands their heritage. She knows the word of God. She knows what the possibilities are. And she encourages Ruth to go down to the threshing floor. What she, I mean by that is when Boaz and his workers had went through the barley, had went through the wheat, and they separated everything out. There's a heap of uh, barley or wheat there, and Boaz is laying down there to rest. He's celebrating because harvest season's over. I've got all this. And she tells Ruth to go and lay down at his feet and uncover his feet and lay down. She also tells her, Ruth 3, in those first few verses, she says, put on your best clothes and then lie down at his feet. Look, she wasn't saying, go put on a party dress. She didn't say, go put on the most revealing dress you could go. Don't go put on your manhunting dress, okay? That's not what she said. And Ruth has shown herself to be a woman of character and a woman of dignity and she didn't go flesh out as much as she could show and then go down to the threshing floor to see if she could get Boaz's attention. Look, she already had Boaz's attention. And I'd say this, if you want a man of character in your life, you're not married yet, best way you can get a man of character, be a woman of character. And if you're holding out for a Boaz, which is a man of character, don't settle for anything else. When you meet a man and he wants to go out and see you, uh, spend time with you and you start seeing red flags, run. In the name of Jesus, run and wait for the man of character. Wait for your Boaz to show up and let God work on you while he's getting ready for him. She put on her best clothes. It really is probably what it means is she probably took off her widow's garments, which she had been wearing at that point. That was a cultural thing. You, your husband died, you wore widow's garments, and people knew you're a widow. You weren't available. So at this point, she probably took those off, put on some good clothes, shows up at the threshing floor, gets down at his feet in the position of a servant, which is really just saying, I'm available. I'm proposing marriage to you is what she's doing. I'm your servant, Ruth. When he asked, who are you? She said, I'm your servant, Ruth. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for your redeemer. She's proposing. And he's so blown away by that, he's touched by that because he's an older man that he gives her six measures of barley, sends her home to Naomi's house. He's got some things to work out. And in verse 12, I say he already had his attention on her because in verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, and now it's true that I'm a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. I got a question for you. How did Boaz know that? She shows up at the threshing floor. The man is sound asleep. She lays down at his feet. He wakes up and goes, who's that? And she goes, spread your wings over me. And basically, she says, take me as your wife. And he goes, uh, I can do that, but there's a redeemer closer than me. 
He didn't go researching the family tree. He didn't go, hold on, let me get back with you later this afternoon. Let me go check the genealogy record and see who's closer. Dude knew who was closer. He's been interacting with her. He's been taking care of her. He's been watching over her. He's been thinking, she needs a husband. I could be that husband, but there's somebody closer. Because as soon as she said it, he had the answer, and he knew. I'm telling you this. As a man, when she left, it was you can go back and read it. It was before everything was fully daylight. She went out, left the threshing floor. He wanted to protect her honor. And when she left, Boaz didn't roll back over and go back to sleep. Boaz is laying there thinking about it. He's going, oh, my goodness. As far as we know, Boaz was single. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. We can assume he was single, or at least at at best he had no son, but he's laying there thinking about it. He knows who she is. He's been looking at her. He's been thinking about her. And I mean this in a totally honorable way, but he is well aware of who she is, and he's thinking about what it's going to mean if he ends up marrying her and taking her as his wife. When she gets back to Naomi's house, tells her the story Naomi tells her in verse 18. She says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will set her this matter today. Naomi knew. Naomi's been married. Naomi's raised two sons that married Moabite women. She's been around. She knows how things work. I'll tell you this. One of the most important decisions any man or woman of any age will make in their life next to Christ is who you choose to spend your life with. You're trying to decide who you're going to marry, who you're going to do life with. That is a critical decision. I'll put it like this. I can't speak for women because I I, I have no concept of how ladies decide this. I've wrestled with that and will continue to wrestle with that. But I can tell you, for a man, when a man decides that this is the woman I want to spend my life with, he ain't thinking about anything else. Scripture talks about it this way. It says that a husband is intoxicated with his wife. That's the way God made us. A man who loves his wife is intoxicated with her. And he's not looking at other women. And he's not choosing to be with other women. And any husband who spends time with another woman and goes to the one other than the woman he is now attached to, he destroys or breaks, creates a division in something that's absolutely beautiful that God created to make two people one. That's something to safeguard. That's something to protect. That's something to watch over. I'll put it this way for my wife and I. We've been married 25 years. And if you know me and you've talked to me much about my private life, one of the things I love to do, I go once or twice, sometimes three times a year of even. And I started this hobby a few years ago. I actually got connected with some guys at City Church and started doing section hikes on the Appalachian Trail. And if you know anything about it or you don't know, I'll tell you, it's over 2,000 miles. It goes all the way from northern Georgia to Katahdin in Maine, uh, 2,180 miles, I think. Uh, I've knocked off about a quarter of it. Uh, I just went a few weeks ago, and my wonderful wife lets me go out and walk in the woods alone for about a week at a time, and I love it. You know, I know it's not everybody's thing. Uh, I've tried to get some other people to join me, and some of them look at me like I'm crazy because... You're wandering through the woods following a white blaze, and sometimes for four, five, six hours, you don't see another human being, and uh, sometimes you don't even see one that night. Uh, I love it. The physical challenge of it, the uh, mental challenge of it, and sometimes the emotional challenge of it, I just enjoy it. It, it's, it just does something for me, uh, and you meet people along the way are very interesting, and there's always one common conversation. How far have you gone? How far are you going? 
And then people will ask me, either I work with, sometimes from the church, and people I'll meet on the trail. Just a few weeks ago, I was out there, and several people asked me, are you ever going to do a through-hike? What they mean by a through-hike is you just shut off life and go do the whole thing. That takes four to six months of your life, and there are people who do it every year. Uh, met several of them a few weeks ago. Somebody in this room may have even done it or been thinking about it, but I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what I told them, and I'll tell you the same thing. Absolutely no way I'm doing a through hike. I love my wife. I'm trying to relate to Boaz and Ruth, and what I'm telling you is I don't want to be away from my wife for the week. That's the only aspect of the hiking that I don't enjoy is my wife's not there. Two weeks I could probably, a month, no way, three months, forget it. I'm not separating myself from my wife that long. She's my friend, she's my partner for life, and there's something missing in my life when she's not there. I'm intoxicated with my wife. It's the way God intends it. That's what Boaz is laying at a heap of wheat thinking about as the sun comes up, this woman he's been noticing that he's about to possibly spend his life with. It's very interesting to me that no matter how interested he was in her, he couldn't approach her until she approached him. That's why she probably was wearing widow's garments up to that point. She was kind of off limits. She's grieving a dead husband. Somewhat the same way it is between us and Jesus. Jesus desperately wants us to be his. He's made everything available, but he can't make us his until we open the door. Revelation chapter 3 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man opens it, I'll come in and sup with him. So Jesus can't come to us until we approach him. He won't make us his. He offers us to be his. Look, Boaz knows who she is. He knows the stack up in the family line, and he knows there's somebody closer to the redeeming than he is. The guy has basically the right of first refusal, the responsibility, and the opportunity. And this all goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. So we're going to step back all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 25. We've been talking about this for several weeks, but I want you to see this because you may or may not be familiar with it. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 and 6 says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son which she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That's the whole point. That's the whole redemption that's being set up. It was the, I know it sounds strange, uh, that whole idea of marrying your brother-in-law because your husband does is, is odd. But God set it up this way, and it was the honorable thing to do. The man who would stand up and go, I'm, I'm going to take this responsibility on, was an honorable man who was obeying God's provision. Now, if he chose not to do it, it was a disgraceful thing, and it would bring shame on him and his family. If you go down uh, to, if he refused to do it, it's laid out, it says, then his brother's wife shall come up to him in the presence of the elders, and she'll pull the sandal off his foot and spit in his face, like that part, and she shall answer and say, show shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And then in verse 10, and the name of his house should be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. 
you know, got one nod. It's like, yeah, he deserves it. And he's now the clown who had his sandal pulled off. Okay, it sounds strange. It sounds funny. What is that all about? It's a representation of the shame brought on him because he wouldn't do the honorable thing. He wouldn't do what was right in the eyes of God and according to his word. So it sounds funny, but that's the way it was laid out. So that bounces us right into Ruth chapter 4. If you've got this background, that's what's about to happen. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Now Boaz has gone up to the gate, so the sun's come up. Boaz has left his heap of grain. He's gone, and now he's going to take care of business. It says, Boaz has gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Just like Naomi said, Boaz has got business to attend to, and Boaz is wasting no time. I think he was the first guy there that morning. And as everybody started showing up, he was waiting. Uh, he takes immediate action. He isn't putting this off. It's happening now. Either this other relative is going to take her as wife, or I'm going to take her as wife, but I'm telling you right now, somebody getting married, and it's going to happen today. Boaz is ready to seal the deal. He recognizes the value this young woman has. He sees her character. He sees her uh, demeanor, her integrity, and the work ethic, and he wants her as his wife. It's interesting to me that he intercedes on her behalf. She doesn't go. Boaz confronts the other relative. Again, he's stepping in like Christ. He's interceding for her. Who intercedes for us? Jesus is continually interceding for us to the Father. He's stepping up and speaking up for us. He doesn't leave it to chance. He confronts it, and he confronts it now, this morning. We're going there right away. But it is kind of strange. He doesn't just blurt out the fact, hey, I want to marry Ruth and make her my wife, but do you want her instead? He starts talking about land. He's like, what in the world is Boaz talking about land for? I thought he went there to talk about Ruth. Well, that's why I say you've got to understand the ownership of the land. And you've got to understand the whole thing about the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer could take the woman and bear a son, or he could save the land back to the family. But all of this is intertwined. You know, God's word's just intertwined all through. I hope you're a student of God's word. And if you're not, if there's sections you don't read, I'll just encourage you this morning, start reading those sections. Even the lineage. Okay, I'm not going to read all the names at the end of this message, but you've got to get this. The lineages are there for a reason. Sometimes I get in them, I'm reading them, and I can't even pronounce the names. But there's times there's hidden golden treasure in there, and there's a reason the name might be recorded, and you'll see some of that today. What's he talking about? He's talking about land, but he's really talking about Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. He speaks to the Redeemer, who's now sitting there, and he said, and it's strange, he never gives the guy's name. Not really important to the story. There was another Redeemer. Who he was doesn't really matter. But he says that a Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought that I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you'll not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Boaz is making an offer. Naomi had a parcel of land. It was up to be redeemed. Somebody needed to redeem it. 
And if there was family debt, if there was hardship, and you've gotten rid of the land, again, they didn't get the deed. They didn't get to keep it forever. It would be set aside so it could come back to the family as soon as someone could pay the redemption debt. So Boaz makes the offer. He puts it out there, and this closer relative had the opportunity because Boaz couldn't do anything if this other guy was willing to do it. Boaz brings it up, puts it on the table, but he doesn't put it all on the table. He hadn't even mentioned Ruth yet. He's just talking about the land. This guy says, I'll redeem, redeem it, but Boaz was ready for him. So Boaz picks it up from there in verse 5 and 6, and then Boaz says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. So Boaz is working a deal. Boaz is working this if you'll take the land, okay, take it. If you won't take the land, let me, because I'm going to take it. And it's important that we understand this. Boaz is not looking to expand his farming operation, okay? He didn't go there looking for land. It was just part of the deal. Boaz went there looking for a wife. But to get the wife, he had to take the land. Nobody's been making offers to Naomi on this property. Naomi hasn't been putting it out there. Naomi didn't go to a real estate agent. She didn't have a sign up on the corner of the field. Hey, for sale by owner, call Naomi, 1-800-Bethlehem. It wasn't even on the market. It's just sitting there. What's Boaz talking about? It's sitting about land. It's all about redemption. The book of Ruth is all about redemption. And it's a picture of our redemption. You should see yourself in Ruth. You should see where you were before you got redeemed. Maybe you see yourself as Boaz at times, being the man of character. But it's all about redemption. It's all about the Lord Jesus. And the end of this thing wraps up, I say it's about legacy because of life choices leads to Christ in the end of this book. If you'll take it, you have to take a Ruth as your wife and raise a son to her husband's name. He wasn't interested. This guy wanted the land, but he didn't want her. This guy wanted to expand his farming operation. He looked at the land, and he said, whatever the land's going to cost, I'll get that back because I'll be able to put more crops on there. I'll make more money. Problem is, you raise a son in her dead husband's name. When he gets of age, guess who gets the land? So he wasn't interested in that. That's going to cost me too much. Or maybe we don't really know. Maybe he was married. Maybe he already had a son. That might be what he's talking about. It'll mess up his inheritance because if he had her... He's going to create a mess for his family to deal with, and maybe it's going to mess up his son's inheritance. We don't know. We're speculating, but I want the land, but I don't want her. What I'll say is, nice move, Boaz. Well played. Well played, Boaz. Ruth chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 ties right back. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he took off his sandal, handed it to Boaz. Nope, nobody came out and spit in his face. Uh, it's a variation on Deuteronomy chapter 25, what you just read. He wasn't being dishonorable. He was just saying, I can't do it. 
It's going to mess up everything. So he took off his sandal, handed it to Boaz, and said, you do it. Sounds a little funny, but it was official notice. And when the elders saw him take off his sandal and hand it to Boaz, it was a sealed deal. There was no going back on it. This transaction is complete. It is sealed. Verse 9 and 10, Boaz, I think he was excited at this point. I don't know what you think, but I do. So Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. That's the two sons as well as the husband that died. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place your witnesses this day. I'm like, I'm seeing Boaz like, your witnesses. You saw the sandal. She's mine. Boaz brought it all out in the open. Boaz is sneaking around the back. He isn't in the dark trying to take care of this thing or manipulate or do things. He's an honorable man with an honorable woman who stepped out up in the open and said, everybody needs to see this. We're going to do this. She's going to be my wife. He didn't want anybody to be able to come back and accuse him or her of anything later. And the thing I love about this is six times in the four chapters she was called Ruth the Moabite. From this point on, she is simply called Ruth. There's a transformation that has occurred. She is no longer Ruth the Moabite that doesn't belong. She is now Ruth, part of the family of God. It's like when you came to Christ and you said, I need a redeemer, a transformation occurred. You're no longer, if you'll let me, Ruth the Moabite. You're now simply Ruth. You are now a child of God. If you, in fact, have said, spread your wings over me and receive me. What's the other thing that's beautiful about this is the legacy now starts to go forward. Is Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. That's incredibly important because David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God speaks to David and promises David, I'll bring the Messiah from your family tree. So you see the legacy forming? This isn't about Ruth and Boaz anymore. This is a much bigger picture than that. God included in the family line of, of Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, a Moabite woman who didn't even belong in the land, she was excluded because of the law. We're Gentiles. We were excluded. But a Ruth, like us, was brought in and grafted in. In verses 11 and 12, it says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. May the Lord make this woman like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, if you know your word, were the two women married to Jacob. If you remember, Jacob loved Rachel and wanted her and worked seven years for her, but then his uncle double-dealed, double-crossed him and gave him Leah instead, and he had to work another seven years for the second wife. Now he's got two wives and only one of one. These two sisters are now, and it's not a good setup, by the way, and if anybody's thinking of trying to pull that one off, it's not only illegal, it's not smart. Uh, but... <laughs> These two sisters get into a contest over who can have the most sons and even bring their handmaids in on the deal. And the next thing you know, Jacob's got four women impregnated. And from that, 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, 
I hope you don't believe that God ever intended on Jacob having four women impregnated. I don't think that was the plan. But the point is God can use a mess and still fulfill his purpose and his plan. And I love the fact that God's word never hides from the ugly truth when people make poor choices and consequences come out of it. And God still works in the middle of that. Now, he also said, they also said, they not only said, may you act worthily in Ephraim and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. That's interesting because I can't pronounce the word correctly. I'm sorry, Ephraim, close as I can get. And Bethlehem, Ephraim and Bethlehem, they're prophesying. I don't think they knew it, but they're prophesying. And in Micah chapter five, verse two, it says, but you go Bethlehem, Ephrah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus, the Christ. When the three wise men show up looking for baby Jesus when he was born, and they're following the star, everybody knows the story when they showed up there, they quoted from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's in Matthew 2, verse 6. They quote from this that was prophesied back in the book of Ruth. The other word that's spoken over him and Ruth, are li- it's a little more troubling. And, and I started not to go here, but I'm going to, and hopefully you'll get this. Uh, they said, may your house be like the house of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Look. Perez was born to Tamar and Judah. And the story's in Genesis chapter 38. It's not a pretty story. It doesn't fit real well into an easy to tell story standing up here, but Tamar was, Judah's not Tamar's husband. Judah's her father-in-law. If you don't know your word, you can read Genesis chapter 38 and get the story, but it's all tied into the kinsman redeemer. Judah has a son, he actually has three sons. His oldest son is married to a woman named Tamar and he dies. All it says in Genesis chapter 38 is that he was evil and God let him die. So then just like what we're talking about in Deuteronomy 25, his second son takes Tamar as his wife and he is the kinsman redeemer. And he's supposed to raise up a son to his dead brother's name. But the word of God in chapter 38 of Genesis simply says that he knew that. He didn't want to have a son to his brother's name. And this is, I'm going to keep this G-rated. You can read it yourself. He goes in and pretends. He makes a pretense of doing what's honorable, a pretense of being the redeemer. But he practices birth control to make sure that she doesn't get pregnant. And Genesis 38 says that God saw it and God thought it was evil, and he died. So here's Judah. He's got a third son. He's buried two that were both married to Tamar, and he makes her a promise and says, uh, okay, when my third son gets old enough, I'll give him to you, and then he double-crosses her. She sees that he's old enough to marry, and Judah doesn't give him to her, so I'm not saying what she did was right, but what God's Word just simply records what she did. She did the only thing she knew how to do. She took off her widow's garments, She dressed herself to look like a prostitute and Judah's now buried his wife and he goes off out of town and she meets him on the side of the road and gets him to go into her himself and he gets her pregnant. So now we got the father-in-law has the daughter-in-law pregnant and she has a set of twins. One of them's Perez and the other one, I forgot his name, 
Zerah. Perez even tries to come out first and fails and is the second born of the twins. So you go, Jim, why in the way are you telling me that story? That doesn't really fit into a Sunday morning service real good, but it does because why are these Jewish men bringing up a story about Judah and Tamar and then only mention one of the twin sons? There's a reason. He was double-crossed. Judah was trapped by Tamar to do it, to bring her a son, but in her eyes, it was the only way she could get pregnant, the only way she could ever have a child, and she did. But even the way it was done, it's still an older man with a younger woman fulfilling the purpose of the kinsman redeemer to bring a child in the world. And I really believe what they were saying is, may God use this situation to fulfill his purpose. It doesn't license us to just make poor choices, and there's consequences in our choices. And sometimes they have life-changing, altering consequences, but God can still work in the middle of it. God can still get his plan fulfilled. There's no excuse for poor choices, but God has a plan and he's gonna work it. In verses 13 through 17, he takes Ruth, she becomes his wife, and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse and the father of David. You see the lineage forming? Naomi's name all the way back to chapter one, which was all about identity. Naomi's name was pleasantness. But when Naomi and Ruth came back to Bethlehem, if you remember, she told the ladies here, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasantness. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter or bitterness. So what she said is she came back with nothing and she said, don't call me pleasantness anymore. Call me bitterness. I think Naomi was in the place where she's blaming God for the consequences in her life. She's lost everything. She's buried her husband, buried her two sons. She's came back with nothing. She doesn't even have access and use of her land at this point. But she's gained a faithful daughter-in-law. Now she's sitting there with a grandson in her lap. His name's Obed, which means worshiper. Sometimes in the place of losing it all is where we find our need for God. She knew about God. Ruth didn't even know God, but she met God through this woman. And she came back and the lineage starts following her. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll be frank with you. I can relate to this. Maybe you can't. Maybe you were wiser than I. You may have come to Christ at a young age and lived a, a victorious Christian life all your days. I had to lose it all. I, I had to come to a place at 31 where I lost almost everything. And it was in the loss of everything that was important to me. I saw that I needed God. I was a hard head. I, I can see this. I can relate to this. It's in your place of losing it all sometimes that you look at the door and you realize the Savior's just standing on the other side. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But I have to open the door. I have to open the door. I'm not going to read this, but in verses 18 to 22 is a whole bunch of names. 
instead of reading it all, let me just run through it real quick and just give you the names. It starts off with Perez. Remember Perez? Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Neshon, Salmon, and then there's Boaz. Six generations before Boaz was this sordid story with Tamar and Judah. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed, Jesse, Jesse, David. It really doesn't matter where you came from. We all approach Jesus the Christ the same way. We have to submit ourselves to him. We have to come to him, put ourselves at his feet, and ask him to cover us. I love this. There are three names in the lineage of Christ that are women that are worth mentioning. One we just talked about, Tamar. You can find this in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew starts his gospel by running through a bunch of names. And in those names, there's three women mentioned. One's Tamar. Tamar, as we pointed out, she tricked her father-in-law to get her pregnant by pretending to be a prostitute. And she had a son named Perez, who's in the lineage of Christ. Another woman who wasn't in her story today, Rahab. Rahab, if you know the word of God at all, she was actually a prostitute. She wasn't pretending. She wasn't part of the family of God, but she came, became part of the family of God, and she was Boaz's mama. And then there's Ruth, Ruth the Moabite, who didn't belong, who had a son named Obed. These three ladies are all mentioned in the lineage of Jesus the Christ by Matthew in the Gospel, chapter 1. What's the point? The point is, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what kind of family you had. It doesn't matter if there were some messed up people or you're the messed up person. God can work in that situation. God specializes in saving broken, messed up messes of families. And you don't have to look back at your family tree and hang your head and be ashamed because God proudly just displays it for the world to see. It doesn't matter where you came from. He can use you and he can work in you and he died for you and he wants you. And he'll buy the land to get the wife. I would put it this way. Boaz wasn't looking for a field, but he was looking for a wife. Same way Jesus wasn't looking for a world, he wanted us. But he'll take the whole world to get us, and he paid for it with his life, with his blood. And I love Matthew 13, 44 points out this whole principle. It can go from us going to him or him coming to us, but the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He wants you, so he'll take the world and he'll pay what it takes to get it. Ruth could have been also, she could have been, there's several ways this story could have gone. Ruth could have been a prideful, arrogant woman said, hey, I can do this myself. I brought home 25 pounds of barley that first day. Watch what I can do this week. I'll pay off that debt. I'll take care of us. Naomi, don't worry about it. I got this. Or she could have been bitter like Naomi had become. She could have been blaming God for the consequences of her life and the choices have been made and it's not fair and I don't like it and I'm just blaming everybody. But she made a choice. She made the right choice. She humbled herself to God she humbled herself to this man, and I love the fact she went from being a beggar, picking up scraps, to the wife of the landowner. You see that? Everything he owned, she now owns. We go from being beggars to being part of the family of God. Everything Christ owns, we own. We're joint heirs at that point with Jesus. It's the greatest love story of all time. The book of Ruth is a great love story. But the greatest love story of all is Jesus and his love for his church, his love for us. 
We all were separated by God at birth. We were like Ruth. And don't misunderstand the hard work that she put in that got her recognized initially by Boaz. Don't try to work your way into the kingdom of God because you'll never succeed. It doesn't matter how hard you work, how much you put in, how much good you do. You'll never earn your place in the kingdom of God. The only way to come into the kingdom of God is to humble myself before the living Christ and go, I can't do it myself. I need you. And I know what you did for me, and it's enough. All of us need a redeemer, and our kinsman redeemer is Jesus. So I hope you heard something in this story today. I hope you caught something in this message today. I hope you recognize you can come at this several ways. Maybe your life choices have put you in a place where you're, you're in a mess. Maybe there weren't choices you made, but there were choices somebody else made. And you're dealing with the consequences, and now you're in a place where it's a mess. Maybe you're just that person today that you haven't realized until this morning. You need a redeemer. You need somebody. Boaz can't redeem us. Of course, he's gone. He needed a redeemer. Our redeemer, our kinsman redeemer, our Gael, Jesus, the Christ. And he's laying out today at his threshing floor, waiting for us to come and lay at his feet. And say, Lord, I need you to fix this mess. I created it. My parents created it. Circumstances created it. Or maybe you're living a great life and everything's wonderful, but you recognize you need Christ. And you haven't had him up to this point. Heavenly Father, we praise your name, we worship you and honor you. We seek your face and just invite you, Lord, to be here with us and to speak into the lives of those in the room, those who might be watching this online, those who might see this in the future. Lord, just extend your arms as we know you are. And I pray, Lord, for the person who's struggling with the decision they need to make. Lord, wherever they're at, I know that you'll meet them. And we just honor you and praise you in Jesus' name.